with you. Uh, this is a, uh, a passage that will hit home for all of us, uh, because all of us have found us ourselves in the place of Adam and Eve. And so let me uh, read our passage for uh, us this morning. This is where the Lord would have us to be as a church and as a people. In Genesis chapter 3, in verse 7, in the second sentence is where I'll start. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let me pause once more and let me ask for God's help as we consider this text together. Father God, would you be our helper? Would you be our guide? Would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to these truths, to this, in this story this morning, that we might better apply uh, the truth of all of your word to our lives? Father God, we see a response to sin the first sin in the garden in, these, in this passage. And yet, God, we know from the rest of your word that there's a better response and one that is possible because of your son. And so, God, may we leave being a people who respond to sin different than we read in this passage because of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Genesis 3, uh, we spent some time last week looking at the first seven verses. Uh, we, there's the rain, is that rain? Praise the Lord. Uh, one of the joys of doing church in a gym in the YMCA. Um, last week, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, looked at, looking at tempting pitfalls of sin, uh, considering what God's word was for Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2 and not taking God's word seriously and walking too close to the edge of what he had said not to do, those tempting pitfalls that we saw from the serpent questioning God's word, uh, from Eve and the serpent later adding to, taking away from God's word, and in the end, abandoning and disobeying God's word, falling in to the pit uh, of sin. Just like God said, if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you, on that day you shall surely 
die. Well, they had fallen into the pit in verse 7. And in that moment, their eyes were opened and they knew that they were naked. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says about that moment. Uh, that they fell into the pit, and when we fall into the pit, with irresistible power, desire seizes mastery over the flesh. It, it makes no difference whether it's sexual desire, ambition, vanity, desire for revenge, love, uh, or love of fame and power, or greed for money. Joy in God is extinguished in us and we seek all our joy in the creature at that moment God is quite unreal to us that moment of temptation and he loses all reality and only desire for creature is real Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God but with listen forgetfulness of God the lust thus aroused envelops the mind and will of man in the deepest darkness. And the powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves like the questioning of Satan. Is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? Is it really not permitted to me? Yes, even expected for me. Now, here, in my particular situation, to appease this desire, it is here that everything within me rises up against what the Word of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer paints a, a, a real picture, one that we can all uh, apply to our lives. Remember, we've been there. We've been in that moment when desire has overcome the Word of God and God, we've forgotten God. We've uh, cared more about what we see right in front of us. That, Genesis 3, 1 through 7, is what theologians would refer to as the fall, the fall into the pit of sin and of death. And we've all fallen into that pit. And if that's the fall, then this passage we have this morning is the fallout. Uh, all of us have had a falling out with a friend. Uh, We've all, even more importantly, had a falling out with God because of sin. But we know what it's like to have a, a falling out with a friend or a family member. And you or they or both probably have done something against one another, said something or not done something or not said something. And so there's hard, hardship between the two of you and this falling out then distances you silences you, um, beginning to point fingers and different things like that. The same thing happened with Adam and Eve and God, a falling out of a relationship. The same thing has happened with all of us in a falling out of a relationship. Uh, this is, we know this to be true. Uh, the Bible says in the New Testament, even just specifically the book of Romans it says of this moment that sin came into the world through one man. Who is that? It's Adam. Paul says sin came into the world through one man, and death, 
essentially, came into the world through sin. And so death then spread to all men, because all have sinned. Just read Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18, and see if there's much hope for you in that description of all humanity, that all have sinned, uh, that no one has done good, no, not one. And we know from Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. And so we're there with Adam and Eve in this falling out with God, in the pit of sin and, and temptation, and, and we need a way out. And what we'll see is that there's no attempts that we can make to get out of this pit on our own. We need someone to help us get out of this pit. It reminded me this week uh, of one of my favorite books, The, the Pilgrim's Progress. And in this book, uh, it, it's a story, really. The more I was thinking about it even this week, is, is just a, uh, would be a great book for you to pick up and read considering our walk through temptation. Uh, versus uh, uh, temptation and sin versus faith and obedience. Uh, It's a story about a a guy named Christian who's on his way by faith to the celestial city where God dwells. And just one of the stops on this journey, he and another brother are on this path that looks pretty weary going forward, and yet they see a little, uh, I think a ladder over a little fence to go an easier path. And they think, why shouldn't we go over this direction? And after a conversation of, I don't think we should, we were supposed to stay on the path, they end up both climbing over and going that way. And it's not very long by the time they get caught by a giant, the giant of despair. And they're put into this pit and into this dungeon uh, in his castle. I think it's called Doubting Castle. And in this castle, they are left to starve and die and to be killed and uh, destroyed by this giant. And, and page after page, describing the despair in the midst of the pit is much like the despair that we feel when we've fallen into sin and, and have experienced that. And yet, after some time, all of a sudden, Christian remembers, wait a second, A long time ago, on this journey, I was given a key. I was given a key that I would need to be able to get out uh, uh, of a situation that I found myself in. I wonder if this key unlocks this pit, this dungeon that I'm in, and he pulls the key out, and it opens the door to the dungeon. And they go out, and it opens the door to the castle out to the fields and they get out and it goes out and it opens the fence and the gate to be able to go back the way by which they came to be able to get back onto the path that they went. Christian was given a key to get out of the pit and Christian, you too, were given a key to get out of this pit and and the key is Christ himself and the promises which he made and fulfilled for us. And so this morning we're going to go to those promises We're going to look at Adam and Eve's response to sin. We're going to remember the key that we have in Christ. And we're going to consider what our response ought to be in each of these sections. So if you're taking notes this morning, write this first one down. We see first Adam and Eve's covering of sin. In verse 7, 
the, the eyes of both of them were opened when they ate of the fruit, and they both knew that they were naked. And so their response to sin in that moment was to cover up their nakedness. They had been naked before and enjoyed being naked before. Uh, they enjoyed that in chapter 2, verse 25. They were even naked and not ashamed, but now they're naked and ashamed, and even later it says that they're afraid. And so they pitifully go and grab leaves, hopefully large ones, from trees in this garden and begin sewing them together to make loincloths for themselves to cover up their nakedness for which they feel shame because of in this moment. And we think how silly that, that really seems in that moment. Uh, and, and yet we know the shame that they feel because of sin in our own life. And we know what it's like to cover things in our own life. Parents, you've seen your kids do this right in front of your eyes. Do something that they weren't supposed to do and then hold it behind them and try to cover it up. Uh, or, or pull the blankets over something that they shouldn't have in that moment and, and try to make it seem as if they haven't done those, those things. We think it's silly, even sometimes cute in our kids at times, and yet, if not addressed, it grows up as children grow up into adolescence and teens, and they're still covering up sin. And it grows up into a adults, and then adult men and women are looking much like infants covering up crumbs of the cookies that they've eaten from the cookie jar just in adult form, deleting texts or deleting history or uh, covering up certain things uh, in certain other areas of life that they don't want God or anyone else to see, and then these feeble attempts to cover something before God seemed very childish, very infantile in that. There is a, a better covering, and in the Old Testament, uh, there was, God had commanded his people to make an ark. He had given them instructions to make, not a boat, as we'll see later in Genesis chapter 6, but something called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was the place where God's presence would dwell, a box that contained reminders and, and uh, reminders of God's acts and God's power and God's might and God's word in that box. But on top of the box was something called a mercy seat. It was the lid to the box, and it was the place where God's presence dwelled. And another name for mercy seat would be an atonement cover. This cover to that, this place where God dwelt was the atonement cover. It was the place where uh, atonement would be made, covering would be made for sin. It, we're reminded that with Adam and Eve, there's no amount of covering that they could do to cover up their sin. They might be able to cover up their nakedness from one another, but they were not able to cover up their sin from the Lord. And so we have this picture of this atonement cover in this ark that God gave them where they would 
sacrifice animals uh, and bring the blood into that place and sprinkle the blood on these articles in the temple, the place of God's presence, seeking forgiveness from the Lord and from God himself. This would point forward to what we'll see in a couple weeks in Genesis chapter 3, where the Lord was not satisfied with these fig leaves as covering. And so God sacrificed an animal that he had created and gave them better coverings. Coverings that did cover their nakedness, but where blood was shed. Because with God, there is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood. And then fast forward to the New Testament, we find that it's, it's really Christ who becomes the mercy seat for us. It's Jesus Christ who offers his own blood to not cover our nakedness, but to cover our sin and our shame before God in his presence. It's Jesus who not only atones for our sins with his blood on the cross, but he becomes our substitute. He takes our place. He leaves heaven, comes down to the earth, and climbs into the pit with us and dies on the cross shedding his own blood so that we can climb out of the pit on the shoulders of Jesus as our substitute. He whose blood atones for and covers over our, our sin and our shame. Think about the New Testament scriptures of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that say uh, of Christ, For our sake, he, God, made him Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It was Jesus who became sin for us. He who had never sinned took the punishment for our sin in that moment. 1 Peter 2.24 says that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And Hebrews 9.22, as I referenced earlier, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Jesus literally covered our sins with his blood when he took them upon himself on the cross. John writes this in 1 John 4.10, In this is love. Not that we have loved God. We haven't, have we? We've sinned against him. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the fancy word here, propitiation for our sins. A fancy word for covering for our sins. God sent his one and only son to not only make a covering for our sins, uh, he became the covering for our sins. He's both the priest and the lamb and the place of mercy and covering and sacrifice for us. Psalm 32, 1 through 2, is going to be helpful for us this morning as we walk through this passage. And in Psalm 32, just verse 1 and 2 for now, David 
who we know, we know that he knows he's a sinner. Um, Psalm 51 gets at that point. But, but in Psalm 32, David says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Not blessed is the one whose nakedness is covered. Blessed is the one whose sin and transgression is covered. David understood that well, himself being a sinner. And so if that was their response to sin, to cover their nakedness, and we know from the Old Testament and the New Testament that's not right, and that in Christ and in Christ alone, who is our substitute to cover our sins, uh, there's an opportunity for a better response. What's that better response? Rather than covering our sin in Christ, because of what Christ has done, we ought to expose our sin. Rather than covering what we have done against the Lord and against one another, we ought to expose that to the Lord and to one another. Knowing that there is only atonement, there is only covering in Christ through repentance and faith. Think about Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13. In, in, in front of God, before God, one day, no creature, it says, is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. On that day, do you want to find yourself covering your sin with your own version of fig leaves, or coming before the Lord honest, humbly, exposing and admitting your wrong before him, and yet claiming hold to the blood of Jesus on the cross as your way of salvation out of sin and death. That's the right response to sin, is, is exposing it, and yet Satan will fight you time and time again, and your desire will fight you time and time again from doing that very thing. Keep it secret. Keep it hidden. Don't tell. It's okay. Everyone else has done it as well. No, no one else is telling about those things as well. Don't let it out of the bag. Keep it hidden. John chapter 3, verse 20 helps us in that area. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Or Ephesians 5, uh, in verses 6 through 14, in the middle says, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. Christian, you've been given a key, and the key is Christ. You, you don't have to cover your sin. You can't cover your sin well enough. 
hold fast the key of Christ and his substitutionary atonement and covering for your sin and admit, expose, and run to Christ for salvation, knowing that in the end, if you do, if by faith you run to Christ and you hold fast to his blood that was shed for you, Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says of all of those who have repented and believed that they will not be going back to naked bliss in Eden, but they'll be going into a new heavens and a new earth with Christ. And John describes it this way. He looked and behold, there was a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes. Given robes that represent the righteousness and purity that you're given by the blood of Christ. In white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I'd much rather have the gift of white robes before God in heaven coming with Christ and his army rather than attempting to cover my own sin with my own feeble attempts. Rather than covering, because of Christ, expose your sin. But secondly, we see Adam and Eve hiding from God in verses 8 through 10. It says that they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And then their response was that the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. So uh, tangible and palpable was the presence of God that they could hear him moving as if he were walking in the garden himself. Again, we know that God doesn't have a body uh, as if he walks, but his presence was so real that he was, it was as if he was walking there in the presence. And, and it says there that in the cool of the day is, is when this was happening. Another, you may have a footnote that says the wind of the day. It was as if they heard the wind of his presence blowing through Eden, which might remind us of Acts chapter 2, when the wind of the presence of God, the sound of a wind blew through that upper room with God's people. The presence of God was real among Adam and Eve, and, and their response to the presence of God was to hide. And now just think about that for a second, because before this moment, the presence of God would have been so joy-filled, so exciting, so uh, worshipful in that moment. They would have looked forward to it. They longed for it. They loved it. But here in this moment, as soon as they ate, all of a sudden, the sound of the Lord's presence became something they feared and they wanted to hide from them. It made me think about those moments. I still have kids who love when daddy gets home. And they love to 
you know, watch for my car, hear the keys in the door. They hear the door opening, and some of them still run and say, Daddy's home, and that's really exciting, and they love that. That's altogether different, though, when they've been disciplined, and they know Daddy's coming home to affirm what Mommy has already said and to bring maybe more discipline and more instruction in those moments. In those moments, they're not running to the front door. It's more so staying back in the room, in the den, behind the couch, and those kinds of things. And lest we think that as adults we have grown so much more mature and have so much better responses in that, is it not in the midst of our sin that... uh, the conviction that we feel, the last thing that we want to do in that moment is pray. The last thing we want to do in that moment is open God's word. The last thing we want to do in that moment is go to small group, come to church on Sunday because we feel ashamed. And we feel worthless and sinful and dirty in those moments. All we want to do is hide. We want to hide at home. We want to hide at work, we want to hide in private, we want to hide from one another. We do the same thing in response to our sin. And yet God, I love this, and and what we see in this section of Scripture is what God does all throughout the Bible. Who is it that comes to the man who has sinned? It's the Lord. It's God himself who comes to the sinful man and makes his presence known. And it's God, especially in Christ, who comes to mankind to make their sin known and to make a a way for sin to be atoned for. It's God who comes to the man who's hiding among the trees in the garden. And in verse 9, the Lord God calls to the man and says to him, not you idiot. What were you thinking? Why would you do that? Didn't I tell you not to do that? No, we don't see that on the lips of the Lord. What do we see? Where are you? A a response uh, beckoning Adam and Eve. Come out. Come back. Why, why, Why are you hiding? Where are you? You used to be running to me. I don't, I don't even see you here. The Lord beckons them out and calls them out in this moment. They knew better in, in that moment when the Lord questions them, where are you, that they couldn't hide from God. They knew that, they, that God was bigger and better than that. The Old Testament would tell us well in Jeremiah 23, 24, can a man hide himself in secret, excuse me, in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? There's no hiding from God in a garden, in your home. Who's the most famous example other than Adam and Eve in the Bible of running and hiding from the Lord, who in the end 
found that there's no hiding even in the belly of a fish. Kids? Jonah, right? Jonah did his best to hide from the Lord in the farthest west he could get. But he couldn't. He learned this fact so well. And the Lord calls out Adam and Eve and lets him know, you can't hide, where are you? And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God says in verse, uh, well, well, we'll just stop there for a second. He, he hides. The reason he hides, he doesn't say, was because of his sin, but, we, but was because of the result of his sin, his knowledge of his nakedness. We, we hide before God because of uh, our shame and what we feel. But if we would remember the truth, of God and his word and what he has done in Christ, then we, we don't have to hide any longer. We don't have to hide from the Lord. We don't have to play spiritual hide and seek and make the Lord find us, which he will always eventually. Realize this. J.I. Packer says in Knowing God, God uses our sin to overwhelm us with a, with a sense of our own inadequacy that's good that the lord would use something so bad to overwhelm us with a sense of inadequacy inadequacy for what inadequacy to cover inadequacy to atone for inadequacy to uh, make right god uses our sin to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy to drive us to cling to him more closely to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. David, or the psalmist in Psalm 139, writes verse after verse after verse about the Lord's presence in the world and how it's impossible to hide from God. Where can I go from your presence? If I go to the heights, you are there. If I go to the depths, you are there. Line after line after line, 20-something lines of God's presence everywhere. I cannot get away from it. And what is David's response? Well, I'll just try a little harder to hide. I'll just go a little farther. David's response in realizing that you cannot hide from God in Psalm 139, verse 23 is essentially to say, search me then, God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and then lead me in the way of everlasting. The right response to our sin is not to hide, but in Christ, we are able to run to the Lord to have our sin exposed, to be known fully in those moments, to take refuge in him. Going back to Psalm 32, if you consider verses 6 and 7, David writes, Therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. 
Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. But he says of the Lord, you are a hiding place for me. Did you hear that? Rather than hiding in the trees of the garden or hiding somewhere else in life, we are to run to Christ and hide in him. From the storm that will be coming, the judgment that will be coming. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Rather than hiding from God, we ought to run to Christ and take refuge in Christ and hide in Christ. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, verse 28 through 30, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is why Jesus says in the concluding verses of the entire Bible, the Spirit of Christ and the Bride of Christ say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who desires take the water of life without price. If you're hiding, you're thirsty, you're seeking a way, Jesus says, I've made a way. It's through the cross. It's through the blood. Come, all who are thirsty and heavy laden and are hiding from the Lord, come to me. Run to Christ. Repent and believe in Christ. And you don't have to hide from the Lord because Jesus Christ himself took the judgment. He took the wrath. He took the punishment that you deserve for your sin upon himself on the cross. And so you can run to the Lord. This is something that we have to look forward to as Christians. But listen, if you don't run to Christ now, as David said, while you still have time, all of those who reject Christ and strive in their own efforts to hide or to make their own way. Revelation also speaks of a time when Christ will return. And it says that the, in Revelation 6.15, Then the kings of earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Lamb. There is opportunity, time now to run to Christ in your sin, to repent and believe and be saved. If you have yet to do that, I pray and urge you to do so today. And Christian, if you've done that once and for all, Do it again in the midst of your sin that you're hiding from the Lord in.
But not only covering, not only hiding, they go another step and blame in verses 11 through 13. He said, who told you that you were naked? God questions. He asks again, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So far are Adam's words in this moment from his wedding day back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, when he looked at the woman with God next to his side and said, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called a woman for she was taken out of man. Now he looks at God and looks at the woman and starts pointing fingers and says, the woman you gave me, God. She gave me the fruit. What happened from wedding day to the day after? How quickly did Adam go from enjoying the fellowship with God and, and with his wife to now blaming God and his wife for what he himself had done? In fact, the language in Hebrew points out that God is questioning Adam specifically, singularly, for what had happened in that moment. And yet Adam is pointing the finger. And then God turns to Eve, and Eve does the same thing. What is this that you have done? And, and Eve says, it's the serpent. And they begin, begin to shift the blame. But notice, notice what is said in this passage, because we do this too. Did they say anything that wasn't true? Listen, this is Adam's words. The woman whom you gave to me, true, yeah, God gave him, yeah, to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree. True, true, and he ate, true. He didn't, he's not lying, but in saying this, he is shifting the blame to be upon someone else, not taking it upon himself and, and owning up to it. Same for Eve. The serpent deceived me. Is that true? Yeah, this is true. But in kind of a half-truth way, it's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. And oh, how quick we are to do this. To say, yeah, I did it, but so did they. I wouldn't have done it if, if this person hadn't have done this to me. Or if, God, if you wouldn't have put me in this situation, I wouldn't have had to put this on my taxes for a little extra refund. If I wouldn't have been in this situation, I wouldn't have had to say this about someone so that I could get the promotion. If, if you wouldn't have put this person in my life, I wouldn't have had to... Work around it in this way, God. We begin to shift the blame and, 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 and don't take it upon ourselves. We need to consider 
Those moments when we blame God, our spouse, our kids, our parents, we blame siblings, brothers and sisters, our friends, our boss, our teacher, neighbors. When we do that, we are playing the victim rather than admitting our own sin and our own part in what we have done. And we need to do this. It may work for a time, but when you face the Lord one day, no amount of finger-pointing is going to help you on that day. What should our posture be instead of pointing the finger and blaming others? Rather than blaming God and others, we ought to be confessing to God and others. And we can confess to God and others and be saved because Jesus left heaven and came to earth and lived a perfect sinless life. He had no need to cover, no need to hide from God, no need to blame anyone else, and yet he took all of that upon himself and died on the cross. And when he died on the cross and was about to receive the wrath of God, the punishment of God, the Bible says he blamed no one. In fact, the Bible goes a step further and says he was silent, opening not his mouth. Isaiah 53, 4 through 7, try to make this point abundantly clear. Listen to it. Surely, this is a prophecy predicting what the Christ would do, what Jesus did. Surely he has borne our griefs. He has taken our griefs upon him. He carried in his arms our sorrows, and yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, our sins. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. And listen, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. Listen to this. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Just just consider for a moment the beatings and persecutions that Jesus experienced on the way to the cross and the, the nails and, and suffocation that he experienced on the cross, the spitting and words of rebuke while he was being killed. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, it says that the Christ would open not his mouth and Jesus opened not his mouth in this moment. John 10, 18 says that, no, Jesus says that no one took his life from him. He willingly 
gave it for us. He willingly laid it down. And he had the opportunity to take it up again. Psalm 32 would be helpful for us again in verses 3 through 5, considering this blaming, uh, considering confessing rather than blaming. In Psalm 32, verse 3, David says, For when I kept silent about his own sins, he says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. We know what that feels like, don't we? We've been silent even because of our own sins. And maybe we haven't blamed anyone, but we haven't confessed. We haven't gone that next step and confessed. He says, for day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. But he goes on and says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. The New Testament would say this because of Christ's silent work on the cross, that we can confess and be forgiven. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. We're to confess to God, knowing that there is forgiveness in the Lord, but we're also to confess to one another. James 5.16 says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We are to confess our sins to the Lord for ultimate forgiveness, but we're also to confess them to one another when we've sinned against one another, but also when we've sinned against the Lord. We confess that to one another so that we might be helped by one another, being reminded of these promises, being reminded of the the covering that we have in Christ, remembering of the blood that was shed by Christ for us, for the forgiveness of our sins. There are better responses than are present in this passage, but they're only made available because of Christ. Uh, Exposing our sin is only smart, if you will, is only the right response if Christ has already taken the punishment for our sin. Uh, Coming out of hiding is only the right response if Christ himself uh, is our refuge, is a safe place to come to. Confessing our sin before God and before others is only a wise and right response if Jesus Christ has already taken the punishment for us. Psalm 32, again, would be helpful for us. David, who has said that he would expose, that he would not hide from God, but hide in God. David, who said he would confess to God. He writes these words in the end of Psalm 32. In verse 8, he records God's words. 
God, in response to what David would do, he says, having done those things, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like the horse or the mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and a bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, the Lord says, but the steadfast love of the one who trusts, uh, the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's a very different description than what David thinks about himself at the beginning of the psalm, is it not? And it's because of the salvation of God, ultimately in the Messiah of David, in the Christ, in Jesus, and his death on the cross. And so we have a better response because we have Christ as our Savior. So Christian, knowing that we've all fallen into the pit, we've treaded too closely to the cliff, the tempting pitfalls that are before us time and time again, and ever so often we fall into the pit of sin and the pit of death. We know that Christ is our ultimate way out of that pit, but when we fall in again, the writer of Hebrews has encouragement for us to close. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, those described in Hebrews chapter 11 who were sinful uh, men and women and yet by faith had been saved, it says, since therefore we have been surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And what are we to do? Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Remember the shame that Adam and Eve felt and they began to cover their nakedness, hide from the Lord, blame one another because of? Here Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Christian, Throw aside every weight, every lie, every sin that is entangling you this morning. And run the race of faith with endurance. The only way you can do it is by looking to Jesus who initiated this process. He's the author and perfecter of our faith. He's the one who climbed down in the pit so that you could climb out by faith on his shoulders to get out. So look to Jesus. And if you find yourself here this morning having never experienced what it feels like to get out of the pit of sin and death by faith, 
in Jesus, I urge you this morning, acknowledge your sin before God. Repent and turn to Him. Confess those things to Him. Rather than hiding from Him, run to Him and lay hold of these promises. That if you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you of all unrighteousness so that when you stand before God, you won't be running to caves and rocks and asking for them to fall on you and hide you from him. Be saved in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Father, this is a meaningful passage for us as a church and as individual Christians because we have all found ourselves falling into the tempting pit of sin and needing a way out. God, I pray that those who have never trusted you would trust you today and by faith be lifted out of that pit by your finished work on the cross. And God, I also pray for Christians who are here who find themselves having fallen into sin and have spent too much time covering, hiding, and blaming others for their sin. Sin that they may think is secret from everyone else on the earth, but are reminded this morning it's not secret from you. Sin that may be secret from many, And only known to a few, but if exposed and confessed, could be helped by others coming alongside them. God, we read about imperfect people from Genesis chapter 3 through the rest of the Bible. And, and we have continued that pattern, imperfect people, and yet saved by grace through faith and we are so grateful for that, and yet we know that we regularly need these reminders of these promises so that we would better walk by faith in the promises, enjoying your presence rather than fearful of your presence. And so God, help us walk in obedience this week in whatever way that looks like. Confession to you, confession to others exposing, running by faith with endurance, looking to Jesus. Whatever way that looks like for each of us as individuals, let us do that so that we as a church might look more like the beautiful bride of Christ that we are. And we ask for your help in that, knowing that in the coming minutes and hours and days, we will be lied to by Satan and our own sinful nature to not do these things. So let us act fast while we have time, Lord, and while the word is on our ears and our minds and our hearts and our lips. Jesus, we thank you for who you are and for what you've done. You have made a way for us to have a better response 
than Adam and Eve represented in Genesis 3 and that we have fallen prey to ourselves. And so we together, as your church, we praise you in this time because you made a way. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, let's stand again and let's praise him as he is due. tried hard against you and you alone have I sinned joy of your salvation would you create in me a clean heart oh god restore in me the joy of your salvation and wash me white as snow and I will be made whole. Wash me white as snow, and I will be made whole. Wash me white as snow, and I will be made whole. Wash me white as snow. Would you create in me? A clean heart, oh God, restore in me the joy of your salvation. Would you create in me a clean heart, oh God, restore in me the joy of your salvation. 